You ready, Rick? Okay, three, two. Okay, welcome to Let's Get Into It, the World Championship podcast of indie filmmaking. Amazing group of people. I'm, I'm Rick Nahara, and I'm stepping in for Mark Roberts. He's out. Coup has been thrown. It was a coup? It was a coup? It's oh. a coup. Let's get rid of Robert. Okay, listen. Who um, won the fight? Look at the poster and just say, who won? Uh-oh. The Mark guy with the mustache. The, that's right. <laughs> Plus, actually, he looks too... He's, he's too wide open. He's too wide open. It's like you're going to get an uppercut in it there, is. start working the body, get in there. Yeah. Yeah, he wouldn't have made it. He wouldn't have made it. Yeah, I... Uh, no, Mark was a drinker. Um, and, he was. But today, for the show, we have an amazing uh, guest on right now, Stephen Bernstein. And... Steven. Steven is one of those guys that we openly envy. Yes. We, I was hearing about his life before we started the show. This man has an incredible life. He lives in, in London. He's got a place in Greece. He's doing a lot of work. He's been an incredible cinematographer, director, writer, small he's played roles in films and films. He's TV. done it all. He's kind of done it all. You know how I, so I, I I met Steven through social media. Uh, I started following, uh, like I follow the hashtags, like screenwriting, directing, stuff like that. And one of his videos popped up and it was so intriguing and so informative uh, that I was like, who is this dude? So I started following him. Then come to find out, he started teaching, he started a school in Greece. And my wife is Greek. I don't know if anybody knows. She's from the island of Knox, who's her family. Really? That's my that's my end game. Like we talk about, whenever things get rough, we say, just think about Knoxos. We're going to end up there. Uh-huh. You know, drinking Greek wine. She has property. She's got everything. But I have a little kids. I can't go yet. So what, I start. What's, what's the little kid stopping you from well, going? There? I mean, you know, you want them to grow up, get an education oh, here, okay. plus family and all that stuff. But yeah. then Stephen's actually living like my dream. I mean, the guy's super accomplished. Uh, oh. He's 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 like living in Greece, yeah. teaching film. I, 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 I'm going with Stephen you. Stephen is this. living my dream as well. With most of independent filmmakers' dreams, because yes, that what is he's true. doing, he's he's gone from you've you've done some incredibly commercial films, and and some some big blockbusters and some really good artistic films as well. Mm. But the independent filmmaker, the spirit of independent filmmaker, all those people that couldn't get with the studio and just sat there and said, "I'm going to do it on my own, and we're going to do do this right, and this is our dream." And our, you've actually done both sides of that camera. Um, I have. Um, I like to pretend that it was all a plan that I had. Because people mm-hmm. say to me, "How is it that you um, shot um, like what of chocolate and yeah. a monster and uh, uh, films of Noah Baumbach and also did White Chicks and mm-hmm. uh, Little Man and SWAT?" And sometimes in interviews, I pretend that um, uh, I had planned that so that I could have a diverse stimulus yeah. and I could be doing big studio films. Mm-hmm. And then um, when the mood struck, I could uh, go and do an important art film. But really, I was just willing to do anything that people were willing to pay me to do. So, so um, if there was a buck in it, so were you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the idea that, uh, that I was driven by integrity or vision is, uh, is, is misguided. <laughs> yeah. What actually happened was I had uh, moved to England when I was relatively young, um, came back, mm-hmm. and didn't realize, having never lived in Los Angeles, what a complex and difficult place yeah. This is to navigate. And uh, the first few films I got were non-union, um, mm-hmm. when you could do those sort of things in those days, very, very low budget, and really just acts of desperation because I had to live. I had a rent to pay. Uh, I had a small child, and I brought my English wife back with me. Um, I thought it was going to be easier. I just shot a film called Like Butter for Chocolate, mm-hmm. which kind of was a phenomenon. So I presumed yeah. that um, everyone would be offering me work, and they did, but I wasn't in the American Union yet. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anybody here. Then the first year, 
was very difficult. Remarkably, uh, one of the first very small budget films I did was with a producer named Clark Peterson. Mm-hmm. Very kind. Um, we did a terrible little film that we shot in 16 days. And uh, why we even bothered spending 16 days on that terrible film, I don't know, but it was, it was terrible. You had to get terrible just right. Yeah, was terrible was that we had a little warehouse. Uh, every, <laughs> we'd do a take, and the director would say, maybe we should do, and the producer, moving on. <laughs> we got <laughs> don't, it. Don't, don't have time for this. <laughs> Let's not worry about performance or quality. Let's go. Let's let quality get in the way of completing Let's just our, finish it. Our, our, <laughs> our schedule. And as long as we finish it, we yeah. achieve something. But years later, um, I'm you know, on the Third Street Bridge, we're landing on an airplane there mm. with 23 cameras, a giant metal plate to pull this faux three-quarters scale airplane down, stuntmen and uh, mm. gunfire and uh, thousands of lights and big Moscow lights and everything else, and living the, the dream uh, kind of. I'm mm. virtually suicidal at this point because the only one thing worse than not getting what you want is getting what you want. Yes. And find it kind of Very emotionally quote, em- emotionally empty. Yeah. I this call from Clark. And he's in Florida, and they're doing this little tiny movie there. And they're in trouble, um, technical problems, uh, problems between the director and the cinematographer. And uh, they're two days in, and they're one day behind. Mm. It's catastrophic. And is there any way in the world that I could come down there and pick it up, speak to the director, and see what's going to happen? I'm shooting SWAT. They're paying me a Bloody fortune is fantastic when you get onto that gravy train in Los Angeles uh, because they hired me and any equipment I wanted and uh, cars driving me to the set and overtime. And, I mean, I was making so much money, I bought an airplane. I'm serious. That wow. is I bought, serious. A, I bought an airplane. Now we're talking – it was a no, – This a, isn't a little toy. Jet, no, this is – no, no. Just, <laughs> yeah, come on. We're in the Piper Come on. I'm not going to be crazy. This is like a – That's like, who was they? A little, little, little Cessna, four-seater, <laughs> but it kept at Santa Monica Airport. So – you know, but still was. Do you know how to fly? Yeah, I know. I got a pilot's license. Oh, good. Yeah, you know, for years, yeah. Cool. No, I wasn't just. <laughs> I bought a plane. Yeah. Hey, you want to see my plane? Yeah. Can you fly? No, no, but. It's beautiful. <laughs> sit in it. You want to sit in it? No, just it's great. Can't, can't, can't fly it. But no, no, no. I, I flew it and flew it all over. Took it to film sets and took it to movies. And it was great. Expensive, though. And yeah. little did I realize that I would go through my money in a hurry. But meanwhile, um, it looked, Los Angeles is a city where. You come and mm-hmm. buy things you don't need yeah. and then take jobs you don't want to pay for the things you don't need. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I did that very yeah. successfully. Clark rings me, I was like, come to Florida. And I go, well, Clark, I'm in the middle of, of uh, SWAT. I'm making tons of money. Uh, let, me, let me see because we're near the end of production here. I was doing the action unit, so I wasn't that essential. Mm. Having a good time. Read the script. and said, wow, the script is incredible. Yeah. Really incredible. Spoke to the director, who was one of the most remarkable women I've ever met. She was incredibly enthusiastic, full of good ideas. It was first movie. She just came out of the AFI. Spoke to the actress, who was very pretty, but hadn't really been in anything. And I said, you know what? I'll go in. And I asked Clark what he was going to pay me. And he's paying me basically what my focus puller was getting for the per diem. I mean, it was like no money at all. Uh-huh. Went down to Florida, um, fired a bunch of people, hired some others, mm-hmm. retooled, restarted, shot the film. Um, it was remarkable because everyone had such integrity of vision. They really cared about what they were doing. So for me, it gave me a rebirth, a new energy. And I said, oh, well, this is what film's about. This, this really matters. And uh, we finished it. We're all crying. And uh, I turned to the main actress, Charlie Theron, and said, yeah. most incredible performance I've ever seen. Hey, turned very to the, be- beautiful woman, but to, for the monster. No, she was not. not she said to me, I remember sitting next to her, and she'd put on like 30 pounds. She had these false teeth, this bra she'd worn day and night, chain-smoking. And she said, you know, you're the first person to really successfully make me look ugly. 
And I, <laughs> I think she was flattering me for DP. Yeah. That wasn't the best thing. And of course, the film was monster. Yeah. Um, she uh, won the Golden Globe. She won the Oscar. Mm-hmm. Um, Patty Jenkins, who was the director, doing her first film, went on to do Wonder Woman. Now she's doing, just spoke to Patty. She's doing Wonder Woman 2 in, mm-hmm. in London. Um, and it shows you the nature of the decisions we make. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're caused to make in Los Angeles. You choose between the money very often and the integrity. And often, uh, like on my last film, a little movie um, called uh, Last Call with John Malkovich, mm-hmm. the way I got John was not because John got a big payday because, forgive me for saying this, John, he didn't get a big payday, yeah. but he loved the script. And John, like so many actors... Well, he's had so many paydays. I mean, I can't, you almost kind of look at it that way. You go, look, you've had a great career. You've had paydays. Sometimes you've got to follow your heart. Yeah, yeah. and I think that actors uh, care about their craft. Yeah. And they want uh, the opportunity to, you know, use their their acting muscle and to uh, really apply the their skill sets to films that they care about. Mm-hmm. The film before that was about breast cancer, and reached out to Helen Hunt and Samantha Morton, both Oscar nominees. Mm-hmm. Uh, Helen's won a, a oh, Helen Hunt's incredible, and they they came and worked on it as well for a very very small wage. So it's always this balance here yeah. between doing things for integrity doing things to demonstrate your skill set, building your brand maybe, and then doing just things for the money. You've got to find that, that balance. Well, you've done everything. I mean, you got an award for just even your commercial work, yeah. which yeah. is you know, which is very lucrative. Commercial yeah, is yeah. a great you know, way to make a living, but it's, I'm sure not what you want to do at that time. Well, or the music videos I was doing in, in yeah. England in those days, it's not always what you want to do, but the great thing is, and I, as a lot of people starting out in the industry do this, is just work. Work. Uh, all joking aside about how my career began when I first came to L.A., if you work, you meet people. If you work, you acquire a skill set. If you work, um, you begin to uh, understand complex notions that mm-hmm. you could never conceptualize just looking at them from the outside. When you're on a set doing a commercial against the clock, you have to make a determination about what's important what isn't. Uh, is it the beauty? Is it the, uh, the subject matter? Is it simply the story? Um, you evolve new problem-solving uh, techniques, and you come to a better understanding of uh, yourself as a person, as an artist, as a technician. Well, doing, doing commercials is, is, you know, is telling a story in so many seconds. It's almost like you know, doing Twitter kind of thing. It's like a, you, know, you have to kind of cut back what you don't need, really get to the heart exactly. of it, and that's, that's a, another skill set. You, you, get, you get to a really essential thing here, and something I talk about a lot in, mm-hmm. in screenwriting is determining what's important and what isn't. You know, there's a, a the sustaining myths in Hollywood about yeah. uh, how the industry works and what we're supposed to be do, what we're supposed to do. And everyone keeps saying over and over again, it's just about storytelling. We're just storytelling. All that matters is the script. All that matters is the story. You know, that's fundamentally wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, the story is a tool that we use. Yeah. But we use that tool to affect, uh, alter, transmogrify our audiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you go to an art gallery and you look at a painting, um, there's no story there. When you look at a Van Gogh or a Renoir, you're moved by it. It affects you. It may even alter you, but there's no story. So we have to recognize in the exercise of our craft, our art, we're doing something besides storytelling. And we can't think that storytelling is our sole object. It's simply a tool in our arsenal to affect audience. Once we think that way, then all of a sudden we start looking at cinematography, uh, editing, music in a wholly different way. And we say, oh, our object is to affect audience, to move them, to change them. To make them think, to but not just, but not just to tell a story, yeah. or to entertain, it's, it's but a, it's not a big just, part of it. but not just to tell a story. Yeah. And then, only through that practice and application on film sets, we come to a whole new understanding of the way film works, 
and our approach to it. Change the way I write, change the way I direct, and change me as a cinematographer as well. Look, when I did Monster, if I had done it 10 years earlier, I would have been showing off and uh, mm -hmm. using dollies and fancy lighting yeah. and make it you know, lots of little elegant eye lights and so on. But then I thought, it's not what this is about. Yeah. This is actually a very strange love story about how even the most desperate and uh, morally bankrupt of people still need love to yeah. be loved and uh, to be loved in its turn. And that changed the way we approach that film. And well, it's, it's I like, used a, yeah. No actor plays a bad guy because the worst bad guy thinks they're a great guy. That's why it works. It's Everybody like, thinks they're a hero of their own yeah. story, and that's another thing that you, when you understand that when you're writing a story, you can't make somebody a villain. Yeah. Uh, or when you're a director and giving notes, you're always giving the notes to the villain, explain how they rationalize their behavior, mm -hmm. how they're basically good people, at least how they perceive themselves. Oh, yeah. I remember seeing a picture of, of guards at Auschwitz, and they had a, you know, they on their day off, mm. and they have a little, uh, they had musical instruments, they're yeah. smiling and laughing, and I'm looking and going, these are monsters. Yeah, absolutely. But at the same time, that day, they were the, it was their day off, yeah. and they were out to have a good time. So even the worst monster, there is a part of humanity still in them. Right. And I, I, I believe it a lot of times it's, it's, it's your story. Because mm -hmm. the bottom line of all the work you've done is still through the eyes of your story, how your background has affected you, how you've seen your life. And you've had a very you know, eclectic life. I mean, from, from New York, London, Greece. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say there's three very radically different places. Yeah. And you've had to uh, manage in all three of them. Yeah. Look, my sister once said that, that um, she didn't know who I was uh, because I'm constantly reinventing myself. Yeah. and uh, Which I is think, very artistic. I mean, that's the artist's way. It, it may be. Yeah, it could yeah. be. I, I don't know if it was intentional, but once I was on that road, once I was on that journey, um, I think it made me a, a more interesting person, mm -hmm. a, a better person. Um, I uh, was never the same thing. Now, that could be to do with a restlessness or a boredom or uh, a narcissism or mm -hmm. a self-destructive impulse. But when I first went from the States to England, um, it was a whole new uh, Steve Bruce yeah. that arrived there. And it was great because the days before the internet, I could completely evacuate my previous self and yeah. become a new person. When I came back from England to the US, to the US I could again evacuate my previous self. And mm -hmm. In Greece, I was somebody different again in part because of the collective audience. The Greek people see me differently than Americans do. Yeah. They think I'm some big-time um, well, American Whenever you film, leave Hollywood, you know, I hate to say it. They think I'm Hollywood. It's, yeah, every, anyone, you, you could be craft service in Hollywood, and you go somewhere else, you're like, oh, my God, the, you met the, it's the craft service guy from Terminator. Oh, Lord. Yeah. You know, set up a little uh, signatures and things yeah. like that. Get your uh, picture taken. It used to be, exactly, it used to be the, the, the jackets they would get at film crews. I met a yeah. AD who worked for one day on Titanic. But damn, if he, did, if he didn't wear that jacket every single day and every reference was Titanic, he said, well, as we did it on Titanic, and after about you know, two weeks of it, one of us was bolder than the others. He said, well, how long were you on Titanic? He said, well, I was there for an afternoon, you know, for a day, you know, down, down on the beach. We had I, was, a, I was wrangling the rats in the sea. He was doing some extra wrangling. Yeah. But man, that, that code game. All, look, the thing about freelancing is everybody lives in terror. You always presume that you're going to be uh, defamed, Mm -hmm. uh, fired um, or emotionally murdered. You're so, worried about the fraud squad. Yeah, it comes up, knocks on your shoulder. No, it's unlike the military yeah. where they, they're the false soldier, the false yeah. glory thing. You don't have that in the film industry. So everybody's pretending or they feel that they're pretending. Mm -hmm. So first of all, there's alliances that are formed. I won't kill you if you don't kill me. I won't uh, yeah. undermine you if you don't undermine me. 
Um, and then as you work also, you're constantly trying to demonstrate that, hey, you're substantive. You worked on big movies. Mm-hmm. You've name dropped. I've never seen so much name dropping the first yeah. three days of a film shoot. And not because people are evil. They're terrified. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, even as we were talking when I first arrived, we were all sort of mm-hmm. measuring each other and trying to yeah. determine, you know, what value individually we had. Los Angeles and the industry generally, it's hard because there's no recognition of just fundamental worth. That because we're in front of another human being who's decent and kind, they have a value. In Los Angeles, they have a value because they know somebody famous, they've mm-hmm. done something interesting, or they have a lot of money. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I don't mean to sound like a moralist, but maybe there's something wrong with a culture that thinks that way. Maybe Why? people do have fundamental value, not based on their wealth or their connections. Well, I think that's, that is the inherent problem. I mean, I, I'm not going to get political for a second, but we elected a reality star. I mean, you know, we elected a Hollywood reality star. So yeah. that is telling you what America is looking for. You're going, yeah. we've got someone who's done all these different jobs or these different people. But a man on, on a reality TV show is to people in America presidential, which even well, doesn't do presidential things. But you look at that and you go, I think we almost have to get to – we're we're so infused by what you did advertising you know we're we're an advertising nation we're constantly selling something we're always doing this right. and i think as artists we're trying to find the truth within our art because that's really it i mean i know when you're sitting out in that dock in in greece looking at your life <laughs> you know looking at that clear water down below and Didn't having that sound some great though when you saw it sounded story. really was, great are you kidding it me? me right there i was like that's what it's about but right it, there. Greece the, does have clear yeah. water and warm water and by the way are really decent and and and, and good people there's a fantastic there's a film years ago called the conversation Francis coppola mm-hmm. i talked about these very issues because yeah. the guy uh, is a professional uh, but he overhears a crime um, he doesn't intervene in the crime he doesn't uh do anything about it because he's a professional and that's not his job. His job is just to make a, in, fact, in this case, a, a sound recording. And yeah, it was I John think, Travolta. Uh, no, it was, it was, it was, it'll come to me in a second. Uh, um, uh, it wasn't John Travolta, but a, a well-known actor. And uh-huh. um, why am I going blank on him? It'll come to me. But, but the fact is that um, uh, if we judge people by uh, their ability to make money yeah. uh, as opposed to whether they're good or not, I think we're we're in trouble, and that's the problem maybe with our industry mm-hmm. is we're judging people not whether they're good or bad, but whether they've made money. It's kind of interesting, the Me Too movement, although it maybe it has there's some issues with it, and uh, not for me to judge because I haven't been here for a few years, uh, but now people are being judged not by whether they simply had financial success, but whether they're doing the right thing or not. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe a better approach that all of us should take. Ultimately, I think it's hard to judge anybody. We're all very complex people. Yeah. But going back to the idea of the president um, – yeah, I mean, uh, people often say, well, he may not be a good person, but he made a lot of money. Well, I don't know how you get by the first part of that sentence. Yeah. Uh, maybe he's not a good person. Well, I think it matters whether you're a good person it, or not. To- to- I, I'm, I agree with you. I think it totally matters. And I think real artists, and you're, you're constantly, we see something, you know, it's like Michelangelo. He's looking in the Marlboro and he sees the, the Pieta. And, you know, we, we tend to look at things and say, I see the beauty in it. And the old saying of, I see the world not as it is, but as it should be. Mm. That's the artist. And that's why artists are the ones that are stepping uh, over and going back with the story, to back to the, the community and the tribe, going, here's something I saw. Here's the story. And we have so many stories. And, and I think it's always the stories, your own personal stories, the beginning of every story. Mm. You know, that has to be somewhere in there. So it's coming from truth. It's, the truth, I think, is, is the big thing, is that we have uh, 
we acquire understandings, mm-hmm. and we want to pass that understanding on to others, whatever the understanding may be. Um, we can have a visceral response to a bit of music, mm-hmm. and we what we come to learn is that we have an audience that shares that visceral reaction. Yeah. So there's something in a chord progression or something in a minor key that collectively affects people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Paris recently, my partner Carolyn Ronnie and I, and we went out to see uh, Auberge, Auberge, where um, Van Gogh died. Yeah. And um, it uh, was stunning and moving because he painted these 80 paintings, whatever it was, in the month before he passed away, and then he killed himself and so on. But what struck me was everyone who looked at his art was moved by it. So what we see is not our differences, but things that we share. There yeah. are things that touch each of us collectively um, that uh, it's significant to recognize. It's what our humanity is about. Yeah, you're talking really about community, which is the basis of what our humanity is. We, we're, we're a very communal species. Mm. We need the community around us, and we need to be working within that community. And you're going, we go back to each of our individual communities, which starts at family and builds this other big thing. But we want to be the storyteller. I remember my father, when I was a kid, mm. he would go to these movies that we could not afford. Mm. So he would go and he'd come back and tell me the plot mm. of the movie. And I'd, right. and I'd watch the movie and, and years later I'd see the movie and I'd go, oh, I was so disappointed. It was not mm. as good as what he told mm. me. Mm. He told me these great stories about these films. And I remember how he would distill the story mm. to, to just, just uh, a great way of saying I'd hear how he felt. And that's, that's storytelling. You know, that's, mm. that's what you're doing. You have different tools, of course. And, you know, things you can do. But in the end, I think it's pretty basic what the story is. But it starts with your story. Kind of. Now, how is your story, now that I'm asking it? Yes. Because how would you say this business and this world you've been, how has it affected you personally? Well, look, uh, you're going to some things that are very fundamental to my understanding of the world. And the imposition of narrative uh, to the chaos of our, of our lives mm-hmm. is uh, significant. And what we do in that imposition of of, of, of narrative or structure is we try to give order um, to the events as they occur. Very often the order is not correct or mm-hmm. real, but that doesn't matter. We want um, order. I would say, for example, that uh, all art is the desire of the chaotic mind to impose order on a disordered world. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. So, Define to, order and logic in something that sometimes isn't logical. That's right. We, we, we would uh, prefer even wrong logic mm-hmm. um, to real logic or to real yeah. evidence of, of the world having uh, an order because I don't think the world is necessarily ordered. Um, I think it was um, – uh, i trying to think, was it Pascal – who said that if there wasn't a God, we would have invented one. Yes. And I don't mean necessarily the comment on the existence of God or not, but what he's going to is that the need uh, to see reason in all events, mm-hmm. that um, why people invent conspiracy theories is that um, there may not be any conspiracies, but a conspiracy is a more comforting thing than the idea that events are simply chaotic. Yeah. If something tragic happens to us or our loved ones or to people that we know or recognize as like us, to think that it's just arbitrary, that there's no ultimately controlling divine order is terrifying because that means it could happen to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and going back to the understanding of my own life and my own journey, uh, as I look back, I think it was generally chaos. Mm-hmm. I think I had impulses. I had a general sense of what I wanted to do, but it was very general. 
and uh, one of my virtues, my ability to pivot very quickly, but also those things were to my greatest detriment in that I'd be going down a particular avenue or road and suddenly something else would stimulate me or interest me and I would be doing something else. I was I started as a writer. Um, I then um, had an opportunity to shoot music videos. Someone needed a camera mm-hmm. and someone who had access to a camera, I owned a camera. They asked me to shoot some music videos. That led to other music videos. Suddenly I was a shooter. I was a cinematographer shooting all the time. What happened to the writing? Well, I was doing some writing as well. So mm-hmm. I decided to write a book. And I wrote a book um, based on all my experience of film. Which is a bestseller. It was a bestseller. All. Sold a lot of copies, using universities all around the world. Suddenly I was lecturing. Uh, that was fun. Shot an important independent film. They asked me to come to America. I left England and I came to America. Um, they called me the Prince of Darkness because everything I shot was dark and gloomy and terrifying mm-hmm. and all backlit. And then uh, I got an agent. The agent said, hey, there's a big comedy over at Universal. You want to shoot it? Sure. Next thing I know, I was shooting comedies. Yeah. And I was the king of comedy. And then one comedy after another, Half-Baked, Waterboy, Scary Movie, um, I mean, Little, Wayne's little, little Man, film. White Chicks, yeah. and so on and on awesome. it went. Comedy after comedy, big comedy, phone up Steve Bernstein. Yeah. And I said, enough of this. And I started shooting big action films and then shot Monster. And then it was uh, art films again. Mm-hmm. So was there order to this? No, I can look back now because I'm a particular age. And I can say, oh, yeah, there was order to it all. I had this vision. But most of us would conjecture it's don't, a ha- don't it's have a specific vision it's we a happy accident we yeah. stumble forward yeah. and then we impose the order afterwards because the order gives us comfort without order it's terror and that mm-hmm. going we talked a lot about story it goes back to the idea of how we perceive film there's these orthodoxies in the film industry that these books these courses mckee and others yeah, saying should be it's story three structure acts, all these three acts yeah. and then the the, the uh, visit the ghost you know, uh, all these you know, all these exciting incident all these sorts of things and I'm not sure um, if we had applied those same rules to the novel at the Fin de Cirque when James Joyce was writing and Virginia Woolf was writing. I'm not sure if we applied those same absolute rules to painting. I'm not sure if we applied those same absolute rules to music, whether we would have had the history, the rich history of art in the 20th century that we've had. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, the film industry, and I think it's because we're using so much money, there are people in the What's well, a corporate order? And that's the one thing. Well, the corporate cor- are- is saying, hey, you've got to do something. It's got to make money. Yeah. So if you want to make money, we want it to be predictive. And it's going to be predictive. There must be a science to this. Mm-hmm. I work with people who say to me, what's the science to narrative and writing? How can you guarantee that this script you write is going to make money? And think about how crazy that is saying to an artist, write a script that makes money. And here's the checklist. And here's the inciting incident. Here's the first act. Yeah. Here's the second act. So what happens is people no longer experiment with half of what art is, which is form. It's form and content. And yet when we see experiments in form, mm-hmm. when suddenly we have a film like Moulin Rouge, which is through a yeah. when we see what Charlie, uh, Charlie Kaufman does, when we see what Mike Lee does, when we see suddenly Quentin Tarantino really to a certain degree, these long scenes of focus on character mm-hmm. rather than simply narrative progression, um, then we see, I think, a more interesting style of filmmaking. So it, we say, how does it apply to my life? My life and my art are the same thing. Yeah. Both have an artificial imposition of order to try to make it seem as if it's following a single narrative thread, but it's not. It's simply trying to look at chaos and make it seem logical so it's less terrifying to us. So my life, you say it's successful or not, has just been a series of terrifying incidents well, you, governed ha- by chaos and absolutely nothing else. Are you happy? <laughs> Am I happy? Wow. I'm looking at this poster where let's get into it. What's funny is it's, it's uh, what, one, one o'clock in the afternoon. Am yeah. I happy? Um, what a great question. What a hard question. Uh, are any of us ultimately happy? 
Um, I uh, live in fear of not doing the things that I want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in fear of my own mortality, not just my physical mortality, but my creative mortality. Yeah. I write every day, and on some days when I'm writing well, I'm thinking that I am, I am a god. Mm-hmm. On those days where I can't write, I'm thinking, that's it. The mind is deteriorating. I had a window where I could have done something great, mm-hmm. and I missed it. Uh, even my movies, those, my new movie, uh, John Malkovich film, you know, uh, Last Call, has had a difficult history of legal actions and everything else, which we're now through. But I, mean, I think uh, it started in 2016. As you started, started with about three years ago, yeah. yeah, and that's only just now coming out. And I'm thinking, this is the best writing I've ever done in my life. Mm-hmm. Uh, Malkovich said it was the best writing he's read in a script in 10 years. Um, everybody loved it. It went down to uh, Rio, and you know, five out of six newspapers said it's Oscar-worthy. So this is my like masterpiece, mm-hmm. three years in coming out. So the the dark night of the soul, thinking no one's ever going to see what is my best writing, is difficult. The irony is that now as I moved on, I look back to my last script. I'm thinking, hey, this new script is actually maybe even better than that. It's, it's more accessible. It's more mm-hmm. commercial. You know, we constantly yeah. change. But that's my my fear. And you can't be happy if you're frightened. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I'm frightened of dying, I'm frightened of losing my skills, I'm frightened of people not seeing my films, we put ourselves in harm's way by being artists, and so we're never really going to find um, that Completion. unqualified joy and yeah. happiness if we're going to be artists. If we want to move to Greece, sit by the water, and ruminate on bigger spiritual things, as a kind of quasi-Buddhist, mm-hmm. or in my case, a Jubu, um, yeah. then, um, then we might find happiness. But if we try to do things... We're going to fail more often than we succeed. And look, we're in an industry where 9.5 out of every 10 movies fail. Mm-hmm. So, however we measure failure. So that means that most of the time, uh, for all our good intentions, we're going to fail. So am I happy? Um, some of the time. Um, but oddly, I can't imagine doing anything else. I'd rather fail and be unhappy and on this path to growth and understanding than to be joyous and vacuous. Well, looking out, Love that, outside, Steve. yes, and that's that is brilliant. I mean, I but I I think also a better word is are you human? And you definitely are human, and that is yeah, yeah. the way to look at it because you know we all go through. I think some of the greatest artists I've ever worked with or met were fundamentally insecure because they could see the art where it should be. You get that position where you go, okay, I see how the script should be, how good the script. Because you're comparing it against everyone else and all these thousands of things. And at one point, you you have to let go and say, okay, it's done. It's done. And you know it's never done. I mean, there's never the, – I'm sure you've looked at all your past work and said, oh, what if I'd done this or done that? But that's, that – That's brilliant. The, the, the old saying is that you never finish a film or script. Yeah. You just abandon it. Yes. So, <laughs> so, yeah, every script I've ever written – and, and look, uh, going back to the last call, uh, there are 13, 14 scenes with John Malcolm. Were superb. John, John's actually very funny, and these scenes are hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, we did the edit; it was nearly three hours to film. Yeah, and uh, I didn't want to do. It. Everyone loved the film, but a three-hour film, you're not going to have any commercial success with it. So, hired a brilliant editor in the UK called Chris Gill. Um, worked with Danny Boyle, did twenty mm-hmm. yeah, superb editor. And I gave him uh, about 150 pages of notes, and I said, "This is the way I want you to recut it." And uh, rightfully said to me, Stephen, I'm going to recut it. I'm not going to look at any of your notes. And I'll show you the film afterwards to see what you think. So he did that. I was outraged. How dare he? 
I think um, that's a brilliant way to look at it because you want that outside voice looking at it. I mean, it's, it's, as an artist, you go, Absolutely. listen, I want another opinion. I don't, I'm too close to it. I've seen it a million exactly times. Right. I, have, I need that extra, and you need the audience perspective. Exactly right. And we went there and I looked at it and uh, uh, the film was down to just under two hours, so commercial length. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd cut out most of my favorite scenes. Yeah. A lot of John Malkovich scenes. John Malkovich being fabulously funny. My very favorite scene in the whole film uh, he cut out, mm-hmm. um, and but I looked at the film as a whole, and I said, "It works." Yeah. Now it works, and that's the one we took to Rio, and that's when the hell of a success, and that's the one that people bought. It's going to be distributed, but someday I'm going to take this hour material of just mm-hmm. John, uh, string it end to end, put a voiceover on somehow, and yeah. do uh, Last Call Two because it's a masterpiece. This is the dilemma: is that an individual scene can be perfect, mm-hmm. but doesn't fit the overall vision of the film. That was the difficulty. So, yeah. um, you know, we struggle, but we do the best we can. But very often, we're not the best uh, measure or determinant or judge. Yeah. Sometimes, what our own work should be, as you rightly say, you need an outside voice. You need to constantly compromise and constantly question yourself. This idea of taking humility into the process, yeah. uh, Buddhist humility, is very important. I was a director. I won't mention because if you not want me to mention it. The first day of every film that I've ever worked with him on, he would say, I want everyone to know that I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, I need your help and assistance. Guide me. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I won't always be wise. Yeah. Uh, I'll ultimately make a determination, mm-hmm. but I want all of your input. That humility, uh, and he believed it, and, is and essential. That's leadership. Yeah, really that's, what that's, really, it's, that's really exactly. what it is. It's leadership. It's saying to everyone, I can't do this without you. Exactly. You know, And that's a beautiful thing for people to hear. That makes them want to be invested with you. That's building a community because every film's a, a separate community. You're so right. you're, you're building a community, saying we're all in this together. Help me, and I, I, you know, being a writer, I've, I've written so many years. Uh, you learn through the writing process that someone's going to walk in and go, whether you're at the network or someone else. Someone goes, I heard that joke before. Let's cut it, and you go. Yeah. No one else has heard it. What are you talking about? Yeah, but that executive heard it, and he, he doesn't like it anymore. He just heard it twice during rehearsal. Right. Yeah, he wants a new one. Right. And as a writer, you get used to going, okay, because if you can't come up with a solution, you are not a writer. Yeah. And, and you know, the old saying, you know, a writer has to kill his children. And sometimes you, you look at a script, and I'm sure your, your masterpieces, mm. and, mm. and someone goes, mm, we, we can't afford it. We can't use right. it. We don't need it in the scene. It's not going to work with our days. Cut it. Yeah, no. My my son taught me that, and taught me what exactly what you're saying, which is the ability to take notes. Um, my son's a writer and mm-hmm. editor, and and uh, uh, whenever people give me notes, I start arguing with him early in my yeah. writing career. And then he said, you know, "Dad, um, he's always been from the time he was small, he's smarter than me and wiser." Yeah. He said, "You know, just listen to the notes, think about it, and then try to employ them, even if you're sure they're wrong. For the moment, think that they're right." And what I would discover is that when I did that process, we mm-hmm. may do the same thing. Yeah. You don't always end up agreeing completely with the note, but you discover something about the script yeah. through that exercise. It's yeah. almost like we're, you know, when you're a writer, you're, you're a little bit blind. Yes. And sometimes you need people to guide and say, and, and I, I don't care where a good idea comes from. Right. I mean, whether it comes from a guy, an extra to whatever, I'm, I'm listening because I believe the universe, if you want to call it, or, or, or creativity, you, there, are, there are points, like how I started writing was, um, everyone said, you're a really good writer. Mm. I'm an actor. I don't write. I'm an actor. I moved next to John Wells. He was my, my, uh, my landlord. And would, I'd hear him typing John Wells. He was the president of the WJs, did incredible work. West Wing, right. You name it. Legend. And so he turns to me and goes, you should write. Mm. And I go, well, I don't know, John. Nah. 
I'm writing plays. So mm. I call, we went, we shared a mailbox. And I remember this, he comes up and he has a green Writers Guild envelope, which is, I'm in the Writers Guild. So when you see the green envelope, it's a residual. So you're extremely happy. We're always happy when we get those. Yeah, it's like, it's it's always, you open it. Wow. And I'm mm. always waiting. To, I mean, whoever wrote Titanic, I can't wait to hear mm. the screams from opening those residuals. But uh, he turns to me and he's like, oh, well, I'm I'm a writer too, Rick. And I've, I've seen, I think you can write. I've heard your stuff and I think it's really good. And I go, oh, no, John, we're not. Um, he goes, why don't you write TV? And I go, I, I could, and I'm, I'm playwright. And I showed him this this check I got royalty for a play that was in Canada. So I was like, look at this. I'm an international playwright. I have a royalty <laughs> of, I think it was $600. You know, wow. So he opens his residual check and shows it to me. And I went, I want to do what you yeah. do. Yeah. And so I joined the Warner Brothers writing program and yeah. I did all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I, I've the, even now, later on, looking back, mm. um, I desperately want people to read my work mm. for one reason. You just want that audience to say, you know, what would you think about it? How would you feel? What did, I always ask people, read it first to tell me how you felt. Mm. Don't come back and go, okay, now you should do this or change mm. that. But it, it's it's that. It's our inherent need to have an audience. Well, there's that. We and, and I think um, the criticisms, although painful at the time, are sometimes things that we get the, uh, the greatest value from. Yeah. That, um, what I like to do, and I say this to young writers, is take everybody's notes. Uh, the instructions they give you as to how to fix your script, you can ignore that. Yeah. But what you're interested in is where they had the problem. So very often you'll give, as I'm sure you found this, you'll give yeah. your script to people and they'll say, you know, page eight, you know, it doesn't work and here's what you should do. Next person, page eight, but here's what you should do. And none of them know what you should do because they didn't write the script. They don't understand if you change one thing on one page, you got to change 15 other things as well. And yeah. there's a balance they don't get. But the fact that five, six, seven people all identified the problem, mm-hmm. that's what you should be listening to. And now you know where your problem is, yeah. but you as the writing come up with the solution. Um, suggestions are well-intended, yeah. but rarely are they much use. Identification of the problem is of great value. And also the great privilege we have is that we get our life examined. There's nothing more terrifying than an opening night of a film when everyone's yeah. going to see it for the first time. But you also know that people are looking at it and measuring it, and you are looking at your work and thinking, uh, I wonder what this is going to be like through an audience's eyes. Mm-hmm. And that changes you. Yeah. Uh, you're now living your life publicly, which means you have to examine your life in every detail, and the examined life is the one that's worth living. Yeah. The unexamined life uh, is not worth it. There's also well, there, the mm. cautionary tale is the overexamined life, which is another thing. Well, let's but, yeah. but the unexamined life mm. is, of course, coming from a Greek philosopher. In Greece. <laughs> yeah. Unexamined life isn't worth living, but yeah. I and mean, the, and the unlived life isn't worth examining. Yes, exactly. And I think you know you what you've done and all your work. I, you know, I'm, I'm honored to meet you and and uh, have a conversation with you. This mm. is the this is the fun part of life. This is the happy part. I think is that when we can talk, sit down and discuss the craft and your humility, mm. and I, can, I, I, I see it very plainly, is tells me you're great. And I, well, maybe. I, I think it's a well-earned humility. You know, Churchill said, um, mm-hmm. he should be nicer to Neville Chamberlain. He's a very humble man. And Churchill said, well, of course he is. He's got so much to be humble about. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm humble. To, look, I'm, I'm a deeply, uh, you're very kind, but deeply yeah. flawed individual. I've made... Many uh, mistakes, uh, errors, um, things that if I could go back, uh, I would change. People I've hurt, um, yeah. I would alter. Uh, the injuries I've done to myself, um, the errors I've made even in my career. Yeah. But um, 
the only virtue I've had, the sustained virtue, is um, perseverance. Yeah. That I would keep uh, starting over again, um, doing new things, uh, challenging myself. And look, when I did my first film as director, it took me a very long time to raise the money. Mm-hmm. We ran out of money. Um, I had uh, the plane that I had was gone. Mm-hmm. The flat that I had was gone. Uh, most of my possessions were gone because I put everything into a movie. And I was desperate, and somehow uh, I didn't quit. I borrowed, I begged, I controlled, and managed to keep going. And I learned from that experience. I learned what is of real value. Um, I learned uh, my own weaknesses, my strengths. Mm-hmm. And I learned about a lot about the film industry, which uh, I had a very privileged pr- perspective before that because people were hiring me. Yeah. Now I was in a position of hiring, having to raise money, and be responsible for the money. It was It's a very, very uh, hard uh, thing. And... Uh, the only thing that I've done is see the industry from a lot of different perspectives. I've written what, 26, 27 screenplays now, um, mm-hmm. uh, which were commissioned or paid for, being made into movies, cinematographer for over 30 years, uh, director of both television, a lot of commercials, feature films, uh, produced as well. Um, I've seen the same misery from a lot of different yeah. perspectives. And um, it's still awful, no matter how you're looking at mm-hmm. it, uh, our world, but it's interesting. And yeah. it makes us better, uh, more multifaceted uh, individuals and better equipped ultimately to deal with the bigger spiritual questions of our lives. But you, that's the one thing I would, I would say about you is I go, you go, yes, I'm a deeply flawed human being. Okay, that's enlightenment. If someone realizes they're a deeply flawed human being, mm. you're one step of becoming a much better human being. Mm. And I think that's what people lack is that people don't ever look at themselves and goes, yeah, I'm deeply flawed. I'm you know, it's it's going back to saying, hey, I'm a sinner. I'm mm-hmm. deeply flawed. There's something wrong with me. But that's the human existence. Eventually, but, you're going to die. But don't you think, um, just what I, I think that's really interesting what you're saying, but don't you think most people feel that? It's just that because we live in a city right now, mm-hmm. temporary living here until I go back to Greece. Yeah. Um, but most that, people don't that, admit that, it. That's the difference. But maybe they just don't admit it publicly because yeah. to make yourself vulnerable in Los Angeles is like throwing yourself on the freeway. It's just people are just going to run over you. Very rarely are people going to look at you and say, oh, you're flawed. You've made errors. Great, we're not going to hire you. Mm-hmm. Remember the first interview I did after living in England for 26, 27 years? Uh, you know, and I am American, so I can do this faux yeah. accent. And the producer looked at me and said, are you the very best that I can hire? And I said, I said well, I don't know if I am. That's really for, for you to determine. And later my agent rang and said, what did you say? What did you say? You know, he didn't want to hire you. And I said, well, I, I, he asked me if I was the very best. And I said, I don't know. He said, yeah, he said that. But he said, if you don't have confidence, how can he have confidence? I said, I don't know. I, I would doubt anybody who sells himself at a yeah. meeting. Yeah. Why not just say, here's my skills. Um, I'm a person like any other, some good things, some bad things. And you make the determination whether I'm right for you, but don't make me sell to you. It's something we were all three of yeah. us talking about when we first came in about how the selling has become such an important part of life in Los Angeles. Like- point, you, you'd start doubting anybody because everybody, even I go to Starbucks on a rare occasion, mm-hmm. and they're saying, hey, how are you? Good to see you. Have a great day. And we all know in that social interaction, they don't give up about it. No. No, and the funny thing is if you actually stop at someone and go, um, well, my day's actually been really hard. Yeah. And just, <laughs> you know, I'm glad you asked me here. Before I had my frappuccino, I, I really want to yeah. just tell you how you'd, bad my day's been. You'd, and, you'd be arrested. They yeah, were sure that they, they got to pull out your gun in a second. Yeah, you know, started, They won't let you use a bathroom. No, they can't. They've changed You can use the bathroom while being black at Starbucks. Exactly. <laughs> but, but you can't you know, tell people a lot of times your flaws. But I guess the maturity level, someone would go, 
you know, if you told me that, you said, you know, listen, if you said to me, are you the best writer I could ever hire? Hmm. I said, no, I, I thought of the guy who wrote Shawshank Redemption is really good. Yeah. And I could name off more. And God, if Shakespeare was alive, that's a guy's really good. Yeah. Some <laughs> great basic stories you that you're going to love. Can't get I mean, to him though yeah, anymore. There, yeah. There's always someone greater than you and there's always someone worse than you. Yeah. And the problem that people, and the way you kind of have to look at it is, is in Hollywood, where we're all at, we get our ass kicked by some of the most most talented people you'll ever meet. Yeah. And you'll get your ass kicked by some of the most least talented people that either politically move themselves in a position right. where they're going to tell you how it should be done right. or a thousand things. In the end, you have to kind of know your own personal integrity and remember who you are. That's the hardest thing. That's, and I, and I, that's I, brilliantly put. I, I think you're absolutely right. And, look, I, and also, it's not about who's better because yeah. the problem we have, I think, generally in this country and this industry is these lists that everyone makes. Who's the best? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of absurd um, that uh, we have Oscars and Golden Globes and all the rest because really, when you're looking at artists, you're saying, this artist is better than this artist. This piece of art is better. You, you go to the Louvre, you go to mm-hmm. uh, the Prado, any of the great art galleries, do they give scores to the paintings and say, this is a 20, this is a 15, yeah. this yeah. is a 17? No, it's just all great art and our experience of each artist and each bit of art is different. Each oh, one stimulates in a different way. But why do we measure? Why is there a top 10 list? Why is there a top 5 list? Or why is there material value? This writer costs you this much. This writer costs you this much. Again, it goes back to the idea of film being so expensive. It's become an industry. So we've acquired a commodity value rather than just being recognized as different. It's so a- different artists write differently. Uh, Charlie Coffin's write for certain films. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Black is different for Jack Black. Not Jack Black. The other one... Um, the writer, um, Sean Black, is, is is better for a different type of film. Uh, who's to say mm-hmm. whether it's just whether it's appropriate for that individual uh, project? I don't think yeah. that we should uh, be put on a, a sliding scale of ultimate value. How many times is something that no one thought would work became huge sure. hits? You yeah. know, there is no. I mean, I I actually met the person who did coverage on Star Wars for Fox mm. Studios. I think it was, and uh, I asked her. I said, "What do you think of it?" She says, "It's the worst." movie script I'd ever read. Mm. It was ridiculous. Were they thinking? They're these word sequences. Oh, it's going to be horrible. Mm. Horrible. And of course, it turned out great. But, you know, there's plenty of people. And if you sat there and said, top 10 list of Van Gogh, Mm. where would he be at that time when they're making a top 10 list in the Paris Review or whatever? He sold one painting in his lifetime. lifetime. So, you know, I just reposted it on our web, on our thing. Yeah, Yeah, because that was brilliant. I didn't know that. And I read it and it was like... Oh, yeah. No, it's... Here's the thing is sometimes even the the we're as artists you're visionary. You mm. see something no one else sees. Van Gogh obviously saw things that no one else saw, especially at his time. Mm. Yeah. But resonates for, you know, generations of of being moved by it. I mean I've you know, Cheech Marin I, I, I know real well and he told me that the only way to see art is in person. Mm. You know, because you look at the thickness of the brush, the way the painting is and how the light hits and all that. And I think it's brilliant. Just, just to look at it that way. Well, also, we go back to this idea of uh, orthodoxies that are exercised throughout the industry about the way things should be done, particularly, again, in script writing, because both of us are, are writers. Yeah. And there's a desperation from the studios, uh, from the readers, and sometimes from the writers themselves to saying, here's the model. Here's the way all scripts should be written. And it's fundamentally flawed, because if all scripts yeah. should be written in one way, and 90% or 95% of all scripts fail... Isn't that a failed model? Yeah. If if everyone's following the same basic orthodoxy, and yet most scripts are failing, then therefore there must be something wrong with that model. 
but you can't say that to anybody because they're desperate for rules. Yeah. Going back to where this discussion began, which is my belief that the world is essentially chaotic, yeah. that we arbitrarily apply order to it because it gives us some comfort. The idea that if we do something and we'll be rewarded for it, if we write a script according to the three acts, we'll be rewarded mm-hmm. for it. If we uh, are a good person and don't commit a crime, we'll be rewarded for it. If we work hard and are forthright in our, our honest opinions, if oh, we, oh we're God, not immoral, talking the, to me. the idea <laughs> yeah. over and over again that we'll be rewarded yeah. by doing certain behaviors is gratifying. The tragedy as you get older is you look back on your life and think, well, I wasn't always rewarded for doing something virtuous. I wasn't always rewarded for following rules. And very often in my moments of absolute madness or self-destruction, I did some of my best work doing music videos. Uh, first half of the day, everyone's very careful in those mm-hmm. days because everything was done yeah. in a day, 18, 20-hour day. Shooting some band, be it the Eurythmics or whatever mm-hmm. else you're doing, and, and careful, perfectly placed shots. Now it's the second half of the day. You got like 78 setups you got to do, and you got three hours. All of a sudden the camera's on your shoulder, the lights are on the end of fish poles. Everyone's rushing around. The smoke machine's there. You're throwing water every which way, every other effect you can have. And then you look at the dailies. Your best stuff, the last three hours. Yeah. Yeah. When you stop thinking and you were being intuitive, and the beginning of the day when you're being so careful, boring and uninteresting. Yeah. Writing. Some of the best writing I've done, sadly, is when that deadline, which seems so far away when I began the writing process, is suddenly that Friday. And now I'm staying up all night drinking 25 cups of coffee or worse um, and doing whatever else I have to do or worse to stay awake. And then I read my writing. Sure, there's spelling errors and and there's logic errors and everything else, but there's an energy to the writing and the characters that come alive. Why wasn't I writing like this six months ago? Um, It's just the strange process of our lives, which is the irony is though we desire rules, it's when we throw them out that we do our best work. Mm-hmm. I think I think it's so true. Is, is that we look for? I think it, it, two things happen. I think in the end of our lives, that we will see there is there was an order, whether we saw it or not. Wow! And I hope I, you're right. I'm, <laughs> I'm hoping I'm right too. But the beauty I, of that I, is that we don't really know. I, None I, of us will be around I, when we find out. I look. I, I look. The people I've known who died, who I've loved, and mm-hmm. I don't mean to get too bleak and maybe yeah. we'll cut this out. Oh, but I, I've looked in their faces and I've thought, what I saw there was not pain. Uh, was not joy, but also neither was there some comfort, which everyone tells me is going to be there. What I saw was confusion. And that's the thing that I'm most frightened of, that the end of this complex, multifaceted, uh, wild ride, that rather than having the understanding that I seek, it's going to be the greatest tragedy of all, which is absolute confusion. Like, that's it? What did it all mean? And I'm desperate for it not to end that way. Yeah. But all the evidence suggests that's exactly how it's going to end. Like, you want order? Sorry. Wow. Yeah. See, there's a two different. We have two different philosophies on that. I like yours better. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, and I, I think you need two different philosophies because that's what you. No, do. I like yours better. I, yeah. I want there to be. All, all, I just want to just have a smile on my face and think, oh, now I get it. Yeah, I, that's I that's the way. Well, that was a great ending to a script. I I saw yeah. that unfold right now in front of my eyes. The way you explained it, it was beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> do you remember Jim Carrey's speech at the Golden Globes, which I adored? Jim yeah. Carrey said, hi, I'm Jim Carrey, three-time Golden Globe winner. And I know that if I just win one more, it'll all have meaning. I was one of the writers of Living Color, and I worked right. with Jim, like, constantly. Right. And a very brilliant guy. 
But I have to admit, I didn't appreciate him at the time. I was like, please yeah. stop joking. I just, yeah. just one second, get, stop being on. Yeah. But a, a brilliant mind and, you know, Jamie Foxx too. I mean, some really brilliant people. But there's always uh, a divine unhappiness with artists. Mm. It's, it's always there. Mm. There's always something there. And I think, because in the end, you're hoping the confusion won't be there. You're mm. saying there will be confusion. And I'm saying there won't be confusion. Right. It's mm-hmm. all going to work out. I, I'm delighted yeah. at the at the prospect <laughs> of order. And by the way, you can short circuit for me. If you tell me what it all means right now, I don't have to worry for the next 20 years or however yeah. long until I die. So just tell me why it's going to have all meaning and, and what purpose my life had, and then I'll be happy. So here, look, what broadcasting right now on this broadcast, the meaning of life about to be transmitted. You, you, will, not, you will be at the end of your life. Yes. You will see those moments that you thought meant absolutely nothing. Right. It meant everything in the world. That one person you helped out mm. who looked at you and said thank you, that you changed their life. Mm. The one student in your classes mm. that you spoke to that took every word you said and interpreted in their own life and made brilliant art. All the things you have done have meaning. Because you've got a healthier mind. See, what I'm really going to be thinking about is all the talentless shits that took advantage yeah. of me yeah. for my entire career <laughs> and how much money they're making, how happy yeah. they are. I'm thinking, yeah. I'm dying and they're happy. The bastards, yeah. Yeah. and I'll be gone. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm really going to be thinking. You're going to be thinking all the people I held over think. The confusion is going to be, how can I get to them? <laughs> and you can try to fuck, or, or, fuck all the people I held. Yeah. It's all the people. I mean, even if I won the Oscar someday, I'd like to say, this gives me pleasure for all the misery of those who hate yeah. me, who didn't want me to shit. Look at this. I'm happy. You'll never feel this happiness. Yes. And I'll pretend to be happy, even though I won't yeah. be, just to give them misery. Look, I, I, I hope you're right. It's uh, We have no choice. We're here, yeah. and uh, we're going to be here until we're not. Mm-hmm. So in the interim, we have two choices. We can um, you know, fill uh, our lives with um, um, empty joy um, yeah. and as much... Uh, uh, white noise as we can to uh, not feel things, or we can feel things very deeply and try to come to some understanding of what it all means. I've certainly uh, erred towards the latter. I'm trying to figure it out. Um, it's a journey, and uh, hopefully, as you rightly say, um, it'll end in understanding. Um, that's certainly all of our hopes. Yeah, well, I, I, I think between both our philosophies, there is truth for someone out there mm. to hear. Yep. And um, this is very heavy for a film. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the other question would be how do you get started in the film yeah. business? I'm thinking, well, work hard and uh, you know, build, a, build a network. But I didn't think we'd be talking about how, what we're going to be thinking at the moment of death. Yeah, I mean, the but, young people are going to think, great, now I know what to think at the moment of, of death. Course, but how do I start in film, man? Come on. Starting film is, is exactly what you, you did. You, know, yeah, yeah. It, you didn't let anything stop you. No. Basically, that was it. You said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to approach it this way. That's the same spirit all artists have. I remember one time uh, Quentin Tarantino came and saw a play of mine. Mm. And I was like, oh. People are like, oh, Quentin Tarantino's a Quentin Tarantino's. Afterwards, uh, he's, he loved my work. And, mm, we, went and ha- we went to the bar next door and we drank and hung out all night and mm. different people. And I have to say the one thing I walked away from him was he's a kid. He never forgot being a child. And I think in some ways as artists, we have to remember that. And what a child does, you figure out improv. Kid goes, you're it. Oh, I'm it? Oh, my God. Well, well, I'm not going to be it. You're it. All that stuff. They have the game. They play everything. They do it all. They interpret it. They jump into the game. Mm. And what you did is you jumped into the game. Mm. You sat there and said, hey, if it comes down to it, uh, you need a cinematographer, I'm that. You need a director, I'm that. That is almost the hallmark because I look at it and I've had a very eclectic career as well, from writing to everything else, is, is whatever it takes. Mm. 
whatever it takes. Yeah, and, and Quentin Bond's enthusiasm is, is infectious. And, and something also I hope I, I bring myself to every set and every uh, experience and undertaking, which is go into it with passion. Yeah. So whether you're going to fail or succeed, um, you know, love what you're doing. Every shooting day that I start, either as a cinematographer or as a director, subsequently, I bring the crew together and I yeah. would say, here's what we're going to be doing today. And here's what I'm worried about. Here's what I think we might succeed. This is what's going to be mm-hmm. fun. This is what the, the intention of the scene is. And you do that because you want everyone to feel part of that process. Yeah. And you also do it because you want them to share uh, your fears and anxieties and your enthusiasms. And if you're enthusiastic, you're absolutely right. Uh, everybody comes along. Mm-hmm. And I was um, – there's videos of me behind the monitor because apparently I move my arms a lot when I'm watching yeah. the monitor. And things. But it is infectious because people see how much I love doing that. Yeah. And they then love being on set. You, the film You're a set conductor. It's a magical, a magical, yeah. exactly, it's magical basically, place. And you should make everyone feel that they're part of that magic and really enjoying it. Um, it's uh, That's not what I'm going to when I'm talking about the sadness of it all because at the end of a shoot, the last day of a shoot, there's nothing yeah. sadder than the last day of a film shoot, yeah. TV show. But when you're there, uh, the sense of joie de vivre, the sense of joy in process, uh, you're right. Uh, Quentin mm-hmm. uh, is, is, is that way. We should all be that way. Yeah. And I guess we should be that way all the time. Whether it ultimately has meaning or not is a different issue, but along the way, we should absolutely be loving every moment of our lives. And, I don't doubt yeah. that. Yeah, and I agree. It's just, take a look at your life. Appreciate it. Because mm. I, I remember a favorite moment for me, and I don't, I don't know if you have one in Hollywood, was the end of the day in a studio. Mm. When you're seeing this whole studio start to you know gear down, mm. sunset, you're walking through a studio, you're seeing sets, you're seeing this, and you go, you're kind of a part of a anywhere. You're, you're a dream maker. They're making dreams for people, and they're going to watch it, and they're going to see it, and they'll be moved by it, and they'll be changed by it, and all those thousand things are possibly not at all. Mm. But the whole point, you're, we're in a business where people are, would love to be in this. Mm. And you know, now you also look at that and go, why would you want to be in this you know, mm. half the time? But we have a privilege, and if you have that sense, and, and you do, what I, I really admire about you as an artist is how eclectic mm. your career has been mm. and how you have – been a chameleon mm. in a strange way. I mm. mean, from New York, London, Greece, everything, mm. because you have a, a, a sense of, of who you are, mm. which I do definitely see. So it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Tootie, do you have any questions? No, I'm just absorbing. I'm one of those students in your, in your just <laughs> yeah. listening. Like I said, I've, yeah. I started following Stephen on social, and that's how we ended up connecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, it's... Um, I kept sending things, kept swiping the other direction, so we never hooked up. No, I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. So, Not that social. <laughs> did you swipe it to the left or the right? Which I, I don't even know. <laughs> no, no, no. It's on Instagram. So uh, yeah, um, yeah. I should mention, yeah, there's a, there's a site of mine called Steve Bernstein, director-writer, I think it's called. Steve yep. Bernstein. Okay, Steve Bernstein, director-writer. And yeah. what I do, But what I do is it's not um, it's going to what we're talking about. It's not about self-promotion. So rather than using the site to um, sell myself, um, hmm. All I do is I give a little educational um, insights into cinematography, mm-hmm. screenwriting, uh, directing, film production, design. So I'll take a little video image of uh, a film I've worked on or friends have worked on, and I say, hey, here's a green screen. Here's how it works. Um, here's how they did this sequence. Uh, mm-hmm. I like it. Or we look at some acting sequences. Yep. And I say, here's a very interesting performance mm-hmm. because um, they stumble part of the way through, so it's part scripted, part Improv, the improv gives it a sense of verisimilitude. It seems real. Therefore, it's more effective. Uh, that's why I kind of like the fact they went off script here. Um, and there's, what, seven, 800 different things like that I've done. And people have got into it. And now 
uh, it starts conversations about the nature of filmmaking, the nature of writing, the nature of directing, the nature of acting. And that's what I tried to do because I got work. I don't need to promote myself for work, but I thought it would be kind of cool to talk to other people on the same journey you and I are on and say, hey, um, in looking at a performance and looking at a script, how much has to be the script as you wrote it and how much can be improv to get that that uh, reality, that, mm-hmm. that substance, the that documentary that, almost feel to almost it. the sense yeah. that yeah, it's Larry the, David. The imperfect thing is also m- almost more perfect than mm-hmm. the perfect because it seems more real. And and how do we get that verisimilitude through the use of handheld camera or rough body and so on? So we discuss all those things. And uh, uh, I guess I do the opposite on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Steve Bernstein, uh, writer director, as opposed to director writer, but Facebook and Instagram both doing it and. It's become a sense of community where yeah. uh, I rarely say, here's a picture of me in an interesting place. It's more like, here's a film that I worked on. Here's how we approached it. What do you think? And we got filmmakers from all around the world, writers writing yeah. to me, um, actors writing to me, and we've just started this, uh, this, uh, this dialogue, which is kind of cool. And it's doing the same thing with the movie. The film comes out in a few months. Um, and rather than just releasing the film, mm-hmm. uh, what I've been doing is saying, here's the way I wrote it. Here's why I wrote it in this way. Um, here's things that may be of interest to you. So when you see the film, you'll understand what approach we took uh, in this scene with John Malkovich, in this scene with uh, Tony Hale, in this scene with Rodrigo Santoro. So rather than people just going to see a movie, they'll understand what went into that movie, yeah. and it will be an educational process. Uh, this, I, I've been teaching for 30 years uh, since I wrote the book and before, and I just like the idea of being the person uh, that uh, is looking at my uh, Instagram pages. If I had, if that had been available to me when I was first starting, the first time I went onto a stage and I had to do a green screen and mm. had no idea how to do it, I wish there had been social media then and yeah. someone had said, here's what you do, here's how it works, here's how it might fail. And so that's what we're trying to do now. Yeah. Well, I, I think what you're doing is admirable and you're leaving a legacy because you're affecting people. Thank you. And that is probably the, one of the greatest things any artist wants because yeah. you're right you do worry after I'm gone what's going to happen mm. what what part of me is is the world leaving behind and I think that's in the in the hearts and minds of the next generation mm. and it well, goes on I'm going to be going to Greece to work with Stephen I'm figuring out how I can I'll be craft service in Greece it doesn't matter you just have to say I worked on uh, this film <laughs> yes. you have to say the trick is never say what you did okay. yeah. the best job of all is to be a producer because you can be a real producer right mm-hmm. or no disrespect but you can be an associate producer yeah. but when you introduce yourself to someone you just say yeah I was the producer of Titanic now you may have been the associate producer who yeah. was working craft services but nobody knows as long yeah. as you're more than 3,000 miles away from Los Angeles. Exactly. Yeah. The further away, the more critically people believe you. Uh, here it's like, well, you're never a prophet in your hometown. No. That's the bottom line. No. no. And so I, we definitely all want to go out to Greece. Uh, somehow I got to figure out how to do it. Got to figure out a film that we can shoot in Greece. <laughs> well, we, there's a lot to do there. There's love, mountains, there's love, beaches. Let me do a promotion right now. The, the greatest concentration of microclimates in the world uh, is in Greece. So if you want mountains, we have mountains. Waterfalls, we have waterfalls. And if you want uh, perfect islands, we have perfect islands. Um, there's a skilled workforce. Mm-hmm. You're part of the EU, so you can bring workers from anywhere. Uh, the most competitive tax credit virtually in the world at 35%, uh, which is very, very good. You have, obviously, limitless uh, hotels. You have beautiful environs. And you're going to be staying in uh, paradise. The weather is pretty much perfect all year round. So, And if you're trying to get an actor in your movie, your independent film, and you want to say to an actor, look... We can shoot in some grim northeast industrial town. 
where the snow is kind of brownish yellow. Um, and I grew up in Buffalo, so I'm going to tell you about brownish yeah. yellow snow. Yeah. Um, I love the place, by the way. Buffalo is also a great place to shoot. Or you can shoot your film in paradise yeah. uh, by azure um, oceans and perfect skies and uh, warm uh, water uh, and with a 35% tax credit and cheap rates in hotels. I think a lot of those actors are going to be thinking... Yeah, you know, if you don't mind, I'd rather shoot in Greece. So, yeah. Great food, uh, too. And Great food. Best food in the world. And, best food. And the warmest of all the places I've lived in the world, I've lived in a lot of places. Um, the warmest, yeah. gentlest, most inviting people. Nobody has a bad time in yeah. Greece. And a lot of people think Greece is Mykonos, which is a party all night. Mykonos is one island, as Santorini is. A lot of the, what, 2,000, 3,000 islands we have in yeah. Greece are simply uh, paradise. Uninhabited, virtually. A little taverna, uh, a few hotels. And white sandy beach and perfect water. It's a great place to shoot. Perfect. Here we on, go. On that note, I'm okay. in. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thanks for All right. Me. Thanks, Stephen. Stephen.